Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett. Our guest today is William Hazeltine. Bill was the founder of Human Genome Sciences in 1992, and he served as the chairman and CEO of HGS until 2004. He's moved on since then, and he's the chairman and president of Access Health International now, and he's just written a book on the healthcare system in Singapore. Our discussion touched on the approved lupus drug Benlista and what that was like for HGS to develop. We talked about working with the FDA as a partner rather than an adversary. Uh, I asked him about the future of genomics research and biotech, and we discussed the uh, the rising cost of healthcare, which is a a topic that Bill's particularly interested in. And we even talked about the connection between art and science. So it was, it was a wide-ranging discussion. Let's pick it up here, where I'm asking him to talk about his pathway from Harvard into an industry position. So, so here it is, our first-rounders podcast with Bill Hazeltine. What was that pathway like for you? The pathway turned for me to go from academia to business was relatively simple. It's because the type of lab I was running was very similar in its fundamental structure to how you run a company. I divided about a third of my time to supervising the science, about a third of my time raising money to support it, and about a third of my time to making sure people knew about it so that they understood the import of the work that we were doing and were interested in continuing funding. That's almost exactly the same skill set you need in a business. When you say raising money, you mean applying for grants? Applying for grants. Right, of course. Right, or actually, uh, toward the latter part of uh, my academic career, it was I raised a lot of money from private donors. So that's the whole set of skills is, is translatable. Plus, if you're a professor, you teach. If so, you teach, you have to talk. Right. You have to communicate point. to people. So those are the fundamental skills. So I found it very little different. There were a few things I needed to learn. I uh, started out by buying a suit, which I didn't have, briefcase, which I thought made me look more professional. Did it? No. <laughs> and uh, then uh, going to the bookstore and buying some books on venture capital. First off, I guess you're saying if you're already running a lab, that helps you launch It helps you a lot, especially yeah. if it's a big, successful lab. What if you're not? What if you're just working in the lab? Probably harder yeah. to understand the, the financial underpinnings, the communication part of it. Uh, if you're a successful scientist, you have an international reach, naturally. Mm-hmm. I mean, your peers are all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's probably much harder. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was just starting human genome sciences, we had a lot of extremely bright Chinese students. They were about as bright as they come. It was a Caspia program. 
And they came from all over academic labs, but they didn't have real experience in America. And I said, stay with us five or ten years, and you'll understand this country better. We are a much more complicated country than you think. It, you can be successful here, but it's not easy to be successful. We're highly competitive, and we may look nice, but we're mean and competitive and tough. And until you learn how to operate this system, don't go out on your own. These were some of the brightest people I ever knew. And I think only one of ten was successful because they all did the same thing. They all left too early. To do what? To, to start their own companies. Ah. To, thinking America was an easy place, thinking there was easy money around. There isn't. And I, I would give the same advice to young scientists. Pursue your academic studies to the extent that you can before you move because y y that gives you a base for understanding society better. You're not trained to understand society, but once you're a professor on your own and have to manage your own affairs, have to raise your own money, have to interact with all the university administrators, you have a much better idea of how to function in a business world. What makes you decide that you suddenly want to start thinking about business? Why did you go pick up that book on venture capital funding? Well, I was always interested in translation of the work I was doing, mm -hmm. the scientific work, into health. Uh, in fact, I first thought about becoming a physician, and I was convinced by some very wise scientists and medical researchers that it was better to pursue a career in science and make a bigger impact on health. But I was always looking for a way to translate whatever I did. So when I got my PhD, I was different from my other peers. I got a PhD in Watson and Gilbert's lab. I got my postdoc with David Baltimore. You can't get better training. Mm -hmm. But my peers were all interested in science for science. I was always interested in science for medicine. So I took a job at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute where I thought you could use science for medicine. And it was a very good time because molecular biology was finally becoming yeah. directly applicable to medicine. I had no clue about business. But the moment I saw my former advisor, both of them actually, uh, I saw uh, uh, Gilbert start Biogen, I saw Mark Potashny with Genetic Systems, I saw uh, Dave Baltimore becoming involved in a series of companies, I thought that looks like a good idea to me. It'd be a way to translate, but I always thought I'm not gonna take the core of my research and apply it, I'll take ideas and create other kinds of companies based on that so I don't get into any kind of conflicts. You know, so that was really the origin of it. And, and, and I took a tour of the West Coast. I had a friend who was one of the first people into Genentech. Uh, I remember talking to Rich Lerner down mm -hmm. in, uh, in uh, San Diego, talking to Bob Nowinski, who just started a company up in Seattle, all people I'd worked with before. Uh, and I thought, okay, I have an idea. Uh, let's see how this idea translates. It was synthetic peptides for animal vaccines. And it turned out to be a fundable concept. And that was your first that's That was first my first company. company. It was called originally Cambridge Bioscience. It became Cambridge Biotech. Hmm. You know, I've heard, I've heard other um, researchers who've moved into business say the same thing, sort of, especially if they're foreign. They come to the U.S., and once they get into university, they see that their professors are starting companies, and mm -hmm. that gives them the idea that this is something that's viable. You know, you can actually do this. It right. And like you can do it and stay a professor. And I was doing in the very early days where the attitude of Harvard was quite confl conflicted. And I was fortunate on a plane ride back and forth to venture capitalists to sit next to the dean of our business school, Larry Foraker at the time. And he became a good friend and guided me through the university process. The, the sort of policy they have versus... Yeah, the policy. Yeah. And it was just a, a great guy to work with. So how long did you straddle both worlds like that? Were you a uh, oh, for a long time. For uh, uh, all through the 80s and into the early 90s.
So how many so, companies? And I started uh, about eight, eight or nine companies during that period. Okay, that's one thing we want to talk about. What were those companies that you founded before uh, HGS? Let's see, they were the first one was Cambridge Bioscience, uh -huh. the Virus Research Institute. Uh, I helped uh, start Leukocyte uh, with Tim Springer, helped uh, start uh, Proscript with a group working on protease inhibitors. Um, there are some others too. Um, what happened? What happened to those? They all were successful for the original investors. Uh, the scientists made money. The, they were either bought or, and actually, there are now five drugs uh, currently on the market from uh, the set of companies that I've started. I, can, I consider that to be a great success. Oh sure, absolutely. Velcade is one. Velcade had a one, funny right? history because Proscript. We started Proscript. That was the protease inhibitors, Fred Goldberg and friends. Um, and I helped them put that company together. Uh, that got bought by Leukocyte, which was a company I helped Tim Springer put together. That got bought by Millennium, which the drug was actually, Velcade came mm -hmm. from the first company, Proscript. Right. And that eventually, I think, got bought by Abbott. Yeah. And now it's a successful drug. That's uh, one example. Um, another very early example is a, the first uh, mammalian retroviral vaccine. Uh, made from a uh, peptide for feline leukemia that uh, we created. That was human genome science. I mean, uh, uh, Cambridge Biosciences' uh -huh. first product. And basically, that was a uh, recombinant peptide made from the envelope uh, combined with a very interesting new adjuvant. So we had two inventions in there. And uh, it very quickly uh, was approved. We did that on behalf of a uh, vaccine, uh, animal vaccine manufacturer in France, and it's still being used. So that's that's um, a good segue, actually. So by the time HGS, you became affiliated there, you had plenty of experience running. Well, I had more experience than that too, because uh, the rules at Harvard were you could be a scientific advisor, but you couldn't have a management role. So you'd be on the board. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you could be, you could give scientific advice, you couldn't have an actual management role, which suited me perfectly. I didn't particularly care for the management. Uh, but as long as I had significant impact on the direction, that was... That's what you wanted. That's what I wanted, and that worked out uh, well. Okay, so, HGS. Well, um, I actually had another whole set of experiences, and this came, this uh, was through Healthcare Ventures and Wally Steinberg. Uh, for about six or seven years, maybe starting the early, say the mid-80s, um, I formed a relationship with Wally Steinberg and Healthcare Ventures. How did you do that? Uh, we met through friends uh, and various contacts. And we would have lunch about every other week in New York. And uh, we'd talk about ideas. And he said, well, I really like what you're doing. You come to me with an idea, I'll guarantee you $5 million to get a company on the ground. I like the idea. And then there'll be a, a trial period getting it together. Then there'll be a serious review. And if mm -hmm. we really pass that serious review, and that allowed me to start a lot of companies really quickly. Um, because we rarely spent the five million. We never did. We spent a couple hundred thousand maybe to get the company concepts solidified. Tim Springer's company was a good example. It was a two paragraph idea, like the idea, guaranteed five million, come with us. Uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, it's not like that anymore. Good Lord. No, it's not like that anymore, but it was in those days. And, and there was nobody like Wally Steinberg in those days either, by the way. He was unusual. He had great self-confidence. He knew that there was a review at the end, uh -huh. that he would have outside really tough reviewers give a cold eye to these ideas. But the idea is I could go to one of my fellow professors or have an idea and say, 
you know, here's five million bucks. And it was a real five million bucks. He would have spent that money. Yeah. Okay, because he was a man of his word. Uh, and uh, we were able to start a lot of companies that way. And by serving on the advisory board, I got to look at about, I don't know, how many other companies. Because I was one of the key go, no-go decision makers for that whole group. For example, uh, uh, Metamune was an idea that came through me. I said, this looks great. Let's go. Right. So, but uh, let's go back to this five million. And you did that several times? You, several you times. You came up with an idea. Yeah, and you like said, yep, six we'll times. Find it. Five, oh, six times, yeah. And they were all pretty And it was great. I would get five or ten percent of the equity. Yeah. Okay. Not bad. No, not bad at all. No. Um, no, I mean, we, you know. T- it, was, it was a great time. I don't know what you could get today with a good idea if you went into, you know, just an idea. My God, you need. But we made money. The investors made money on every one of my deals. Yeah, yeah. The, okay. original, the original investors, you know, there's ups and downs in yeah. the market. Yeah, yeah. So not everybody does. Yeah. But the original shareholders and the original investors and even the second round investors, I think, all made money. And then I think the venture sequencing technology. Right. What is that? different from that? Uh, Wally came to me in Steinberg and he said, Bill, here's an idea. I'll get you out of Harvard. I said, Wally, why should I do that? Yeah, yeah exactly. He said, well, you look at the technology. And in very short order, I realized that it had the potential to change all of science. And remember, my goal is to use science yeah. to change medicine. And I saw something different from what the planners of the Human Genome Project saw. They were geneticists and thought of genes as inheritance, and that was a key to success in medicine from genomics. And I used to give a talk that genomics isn't necessarily genetics. And the vision I had had nothing to do with genetics. It was, this was a new anatomy. We were going to understand, first of all, identify every gene really quickly. Mm-hmm. We would create methods so we knew where they were expressed in health and disease. And that would give us the tools we needed to start a new discovery project. Because given a particular gene in this protein project product, either it's a drug, it's an antibody target, or it's a target for a small molecule modulation. And given any one of these and its association with disease, you could open up the keys to both infectious disease and human health. And at the time, there were only about six, 700 ideas in all of medicine you could work on. That was it. You couldn't work on anything you wanted. You were limited by the rate of discovery. And I thought, it, the technology, that's the vision that just flashed in front of me like that. And I knew that we could do it because I knew if you had one gene, even if you didn't know what it was, you could figure out what it was. And the reason I was so confident for that is we were one of the first groups we tied with the French group to sequence HIV. And there was all these genes. I thought, oh, boy, we cut them out. And within sometimes within months, there were good drug targets and drug candidates. Literally within months. I'm not making that up. No, it was sure. an amazing phenomenon. And sometimes we found genes that had no obvious function. We figured out the function within three or four months, and they were targets. So I thought, you could take a gene, you don't even know what the function is. But if you tell me what tissue it's made in, under what physiological conditions it's used, and how it's associated in health or disease, I can tell you whether it's likely to be a good subject for a drug. And for our own company, we said, well, what we're going to do with that is make protein and antibody drugs and let the pharmaceutical companies make the the small molecule drugs. And that was the fundamental concept. But it was basically... uh, uh, an idea that came from the realization that you could isolate in full-length functional form a full set of human genes with the current technology 
very rapidly. And with computer technology, you could begin to interpret that and make make sense of it. Now, of course, there's a whole field that makes sense of it much more easily. Sure. So you, you're saying that what you envisioned genomics would be, would it would exponentially explode the amount of things you could look at um, and try to target. It would yeah. be the it would be the key that you needed to begin the process. I should say the arduous process of taking an idea to a drug to cure or treat a disease. And in retrospect, that turned out to be absolutely accurate. Arduous. It's so not arduous. It is so prevalent the methods that we pioneered that people don't even think about it today. The, you know, for the last 10 years, nobody's thought about it, starting a project almost any other way. You take a complete set of genes, you look at where it's expressed, where it's not expressed, you get the gene, you start to work with it, and that's how you do science today. Mm -hmm. Well, believe me, people didn't believe it at that time. They had no concept that that was going to work. We got so much flack from the geneticists. They said, well, if you don't know what it does, how are you ever going to make it useful? And what we would say is, if you give me a gene and you give me the information we can really get from it, I can tell you what its use is going to be. Now, if I can do that with one, I can do that with ten, I can do it with a hundred, I can do it with a thousand. I can't do it all myself, but the community can. And so we were, I was, my fundamental drive was to create a new tool. And I realized in order to get the tool to be adopted quickly, we had to show it worked. But so do you do you feel like those geneticists are somewhat validated in saying those things now? Now that we not have, at all, not no, at all. But anybody in biology today who wants to understand function goes to. By the way, we thought of directed genetics as part of the key. Mm -hmm. Goes to a full set of genes, where they're used, where they're not used, looks at the protein. And if necessary, knocks it out. But that isn't what the geneticists were looking at. They were looking at the natural range of variation. And I said, look, you can figure out what these things do. And that's how you're going to know what the drug to So in terms of pharmaceuticals, almost all pharmaceuticals today start with what I just described, knowing what genes exist, where they're expressed, how they vary under physiological and disease conditions. Then you start doing experiments to test it. You knock it out, you modify it, you overexpress it, you underexpress it, you regulate how it's expressed, all those wonderful tricks. You knock it in, you knock it out, you do right. everything you want. All those tricks are available, but you start with the fundamental, and that is the fundamental driver for modern bioscience today, so, with the exception of things like neurology and, sure. and other things, but even there, it, it's relevant. The application for diagnosis and prognosis has been slower. P diagnosis, much faster. Prognosis, still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it's not happening. It's just taking a much longer time. And that is never the track that we took. Okay, so sliding back. Yeah. You're looking at this technology. You go back to the VC and you say, no, it's really, really good. I think you would be foolish not to. No, no, they knew it was good. Well, they, what did they, they send but, you? But then? they said what it's going to be good for is to sell this information to all these companies. And I said, that's not the way we should do it. It's much better to use this to build a company and then find a new way of supporting it by selling this information to companies for small molecule drug development. Okay. Don't sell it as uh, we're going to give you access to the heart and you to the brain and you to the liver, which was the business model. I said, no, no, no. You take this information and you say, you use it for yourself and build a real pharmaceutical company. That's what I want to do because nobody's going to believe this works unless you show it works. Mm. Once you show it works, everybody's going to flock to it. And you support it 
by saying to pharmaceutical companies, here's a new discovery tool. We'll share it with you if you give us money to support the company. And so within the first year and a half, we had something like, in our own company, something like $300 million from that kind of financing, yeah, which the, was way up for $5 million. Sure. The deal that you did with JS, GSK was, I think, the first of its kind where they came in and said, um, you know, they were interested. And you said, well, we'll give you, we'll mine the genome, but we're going to give you the information for small molecules. Anything on biologics, we're going to keep. That's the, no, they had the right to do biologics, too. They but did? If we, yeah. But if we found it first, we got it. I see. Okay. And that, that was the original deal. And then we expanded the deal to work with uh, four or five other companies. And that seemed to be the first one of those types of deals it in was. the industry. Yeah. yeah. And after that, you know, I think Millennium probably used that model, too. Insight, I think, was another right. one. Um, so that was sort but of the value a, went down, 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 down. Yeah. yeah. So we got the high value by being first. Okay. So anyway, they said, let's set up a company, right? It's going to be HGS. Right. Venture wanted to do nonprofit. HGS was going to be for-profit. What well, happened that, I, I looked at it in a different way. Uh, I looked at the tool that I wanted to create was one that would change science. And it was a tool that was very practically oriented. Find all the genes, put every single gene in a single test tube. So you wanted it, you had it. You had a full-length cDNA for every human gene, and you knew where it was expressed, under what circumstance. And that would be the key to starting a medical project. That's how I looked at it. The relationship with Venter was to provide us with the technology so that we can do that. The for-profit, not-for-profit business was not my primary concern. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be a good business. I thought we could raise a lot of money. I thought it would create drugs. But that wasn't my motivation. My motivation was to help change how science is done and and to show that it worked and to bring some drugs to market. Sure, yeah. Not that you were aiming for the, the money side right. of things. But, look, you wanted to go off and make drugs, and maybe Venter wasn't right. quite. He was more interested in publishing. Well, you know, you side. should talk to Craig about what he wanted to do, what he, his ideas Yeah, was. okay. So company you started. Right. At one point, you had five or six drugs in the clinic, I think. We had, yeah, we had a lot. And I think some of those still would have been good drugs, but, you know, the whole process of drug development and how you fit technology into the market is a really difficult thing. Uh, I, I, I mean, we had some drugs that probably worked, but the medical practice changed. Mm -hmm. When you're developing drugs, you're shooting at a medical target that's 10 to 15 years away, and medical practice changes. We had a drug that I think really would have been useful for oral mucositis w that's induced by chemotherapy. Yeah. But some doctors figured out you just give some patients some ice. Just stick ice in their mouth after their chemotherapy. They don't get mucositis. Yeah, would be better, ice is cheaper yeah. than drugs. Yeah, exactly. Right? So a few ice chips, and they're what you market. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty extreme example, but that kind of thing happens all the time. Medical practice is changing. You start on a process. You aim for a target. And uh, it's, a, it's a moving target. Sometimes you hit it, sometimes you don't. I'll give you another example. There's a great drug we found. It's bliss, which is a, a hormone, a B-cell-specific hormone. Mm -hmm. And it's quite specific. It hits B-cells and nothing else. It makes them grow like crazy and make antibodies. The first thing we thought is, well, we're going to take people who are aplastic anemic. They don't make antibodies. We'll give it to them. We looked at that market. The drug surely would have worked for them we found some animal experiments and it would have worked. The problem is immunoglobulin works for them. So who would pay for an expensive drug when you have a yeah. cheap drug? Okay, then we said, okay, we're going to make it radioactive or poisonous and it's going to go right to that target and kill it. We made it radioactive. 
It was super at imaging, and the first two patients we tried had multiple myeloma, advanced multiple myeloma, had dramatic regression. Then when we tried to get outside support to do the more clinical development with it, turned out that a previous drug had used an antibody that was radioinated, had been approved, and had no market. Why? Because clinical practice was such, at that time, you couldn't get radiologists to work with chemotherapists. And this was both a chemotherapy and a radiological drug. And the previous drug had failed. Our drug didn't look like it was going to be, you know, although it's a better drug, didn't look like it was going to have a different uptake by the market. So we decided to put our efforts into something else. Why would they not work together? Just to that you have to ask the doctors. Yeah. Now, I've worked at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute for many years. And one thing you realize is people have their own fiefdoms. And at that time, radiologists didn't they get were, on with yeah. chemotherapists. Either you did radiology or you did chemotherapy, or first you did chemotherapy and then you did radiology. You didn't do them at the same time. Uh, so that was a problem. It wasn't the problem for our drug because we never got that far. Right. It was a problem for the previous drug. And that, I give you that as an example to show you when you're trying to match a new discovery. I still think that would be a great drug, by the way. Now with some of the new toxins, you link that thing to yeah. the new toxin. I think you can make a great drug out of that. And the, the linker technology is better now, too. Oh, right? and the toxins are better, and yeah. we know it works now. And so they, you don't have to use a radioactive drug anymore. So then, but did that become Benlista? No. Then we thought the third one, somebody said, well, one of our scientists came over the and said, well, these two things have struck out. Maybe if, there's gonna, if you overproduce antibodies, it's going to be autoimmune. Let's look at all the autoimmune diseases. So we made an assay for it. We looked at all autoimmune diseases. And we saw that in uh, uh, about one-third of the lupus patients, we saw very high levels. And then we did a longitudinal uh, study, and we saw it went up and down, mm -hmm. and that correlated with the flare-ups. We thought, oh, this looks really good. We made animal models. They got uh, lupus-like disease when we overproduced it. We made an antibody that knocked it out. That was our drug. And that's so it was a, it was a, But that was a pure dis genomic discovery. How do we find bliss in the first place? We made a set of every human protein, we thought, that had the ability to be secreted. There's a secretory, so we got, I don't know, two, 3,000 of them. We actually made small amounts of each one of those, mm -hmm. and then we tested those to make B cells grow. We tested those to make fibroblasts grow, to make endothelial cells grow, to make cancer cells stop growing. And in this case, three of them made B cells grow, one of them really well, that was bliss. So it was a totally abstract, we treated human gene problems. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As if they were a chemical library. And that's what this new technology allowed you to do. You didn't have to know what they did. All, the, all you had to know is that they left the cell. And we found a number of really interesting uh, drug candidates that way. You know, that's a big success story. There, there had not been a drug approved for lupus for 40 years or something like right. that. And, and I can say there's another part of that that I learned in the process, and that is lupus was particularly good for a new company. Because there'd been no drug approved, there was no pathway for a drug to be approved. Right? So we had to help the FDA create the pathway. And they have a whole process for pathway approval. We worked really hard on that issue. We came up what we thought were two independent measurements for success. Mm -hmm. uh, the FDA went on the road and had three or four different public hearings, and the end and and adopted about ninety percent of our recommendations. But and that allowed us to shoot for targets that we knew. But you know, companies today would, would tell you the opposite, that if there's a, there's a pathway through the FDA already, then it's easier for them to get the drug approved. And you're saying it's the opposite. Well, I think it's getting harder now because the FDA doesn't want to approve me two drugs. Yeah. It's got to be very much better than the existing drug to get approved today. And that's part of the whole cost control story. You know, the, the, the emphasis is if it is really new and is in treating a disease that nobody's done or is really different, it gets favorable view. If it's just another Me Too, which is the bread and butter of the pharmaceutical industry yeah. from the 80s and 90s, that's those days are over. So do you feel like the FDA was actually a partner with you? Along yes, the and I think people who, who pillory the FDA have made a big mistake. The FDA is your partner. The FDA wants good drugs approved. That was always my opinion. Sometimes they were perverse, in our opinion. Mm -hmm. They did things we didn't like, but you could always go back and discuss it with them. It was not a closed shop. It's not a, a faceless bureaucracy. Is it still People like that? The FDA, yes. The so FDA has a lot of faces that are very intelligent and willing to work with you if you're willing to work with them. You shouldn't try to beat them up. Nobody likes to get beat right. up. Yeah. Okay. But we found, I think, that they were very cooperative. I can't say that's true in every instance. I can think of a couple right off the top of my mind where we thought they were perverse. And, and, and the question is, how much hard do you want to fight? And uh, I find them extremely helpful. I think they're doing the job they should do. I never saw the FDA as a huge impediment. They were for some of the drugs where, for example, uh, we'd have to do go very, very slowly. But my feeling is when they put that pressure on us to go slowly, they knew things we didn't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a random go slowly. It was, we've seen other failures here, guys. We've seen antibodies that do bad things to people. We've seen this kind of drug have that side effect. We want to be really careful yeah. with this. So for the first 5, 10, 20 patients, you go slowly. After that, if everything looks okay, then you accelerate. But I think they Fair were enough. coming at it. They couldn't give us the details of the knowledge, but reading between the lines and the interactions with them, I think that it was clear they had adverse experience with similar pathways. Hmm. Let's switch topics a little bit. So you, you left 
HGS in maybe 2004, is that right? Right, that's right. Okay, and then it was sold, what, it was completed last year, yes, I think. Right. So what, what, what precipitated the, the well, leaving? Well, I have a pioneer mentality. I like to be out there in front with uh-huh. nobody else. I like to have the uh, free idea that you have intellectual freedom, and I like to create things. The process of getting a drug to market is not one that I enjoyed. Uh, it's, I, I called uh, being the head of a small company, and we were even though we we're bigger than most, we we're still small. Sort of, um, it felt like squeezing a marble down a tight rubber tube. You had to destroy what you just created to get to the next step because you didn't have enough resources to mm-hmm. do the whole thing. And so the the very people who got you to where you were, you had to let go. And the people that I had to let go were all the creative scientists. And that's the people I like. That's who right. I am. Yeah. Right? And that was very painful. And then when you get into the regulation and you get into all the quality control and the manufacturing issues, that's a series of things that I never wanted to learn and didn't like. Now, that's my particular makeup. And at that point, it was much better to bring in somebody who had that, that uh, constitution, who had done it before, who knew it, who enjoyed it. It's a, a whole different, different life. It is what takes a drug to market. And it's a very valuable thing. It just wasn't me. Did you, um, still though, did you feel a little pang in your stomach when it was sold? No? When it was sold? When it was sold, yeah, it was sold for too little. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, that's that you don't like. But by that time, I had cashed in all my chips. I just think they, you know, they had an offer the year before for twice the amount. No, I'm I'm not. And that hurts. I don't disagree. Uh, But but, uh, the, the other thing, if you look at the other side of the equation, they got two drugs which are market valued at zero. Yeah. They're getting a great drug for diabetes. Uh, and they're getting another great drug, I think, for uh, cardiovascular disease. Could be a second uh, Lipitor. And, yeah. they, and the market plays zero value on that. But when you look at, if you even go wider scope, this yeah. is a company that you helped found yeah. when it was nothing, and it was sold for $3.6 billion. That's a huge success story. It's, it's a success. It's, it's one huge. of the, you know, the biotech and doesn't we have, have that drugs, many. we have drugs that are on the market. Exactly, yeah. That is great. But beyond that, the company had a big psychic impact. It had a big practical impact. Before we were there, I can't tell you, if you go back and you look at the interviews that we did early on and the way the Human Genome Project people treated us, it was like we were pariahs. We were doing something completely unjustified, that there was no scientific or rational basis for this, that you had to be a geneticist Mm -hmm. to be a genomicist. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case. There was plenty of room for both. They didn't think there was room for both, but there was room for both. And if I look back at what I think human genome science's major contribution is, it's giving humanity a new tool to fight disease. And it did that, and it did it very well, and it showed that it worked. Um, two things about the industry, and then we'll switch to um, healthcare in general and talk about what you're doing now. But what do you think the future of genomics is for the biotech industry? Well, first of all, it's opened up the entire field of infectious disease, actually agronomics, um, industrial science, synthetic biology, mm-hmm. um, environmental remediation. It's all starts now with genomics. Um, so I think restructuring our material world and our world of health in response to our knowledge of genomics and then more broader what I now call omics, which mm-hmm. includes protein, metabolism, all sorts of things. The the omic knowledge that humans have of, of the living world allows it to use it for our material and health gains. And I think that that's an enormous impact. And it's going to be continue to be felt. So if you look just at the field of energy, 
look at all the bioconversion work that's being right. done. It starts with genomics. It doesn't end there, but it starts with knowing the genes, not only of the organism you're manipulating, but all the genes that exist and what might be useful. So you say, I need to get a chemical from A to B. Where in nature is that kind of enzyme? You go and you find 10 different variants, you make them, you vary those still further till you get one that's optimized for your condition. Then you put it into an organism and you adjust the way it's used and how it interacts with other metabolites. And now you use this fantastic new knowledge that's come about gene regulation and you get it to regulate so it does what you want it to. And that's the way we're changing the material world. I see biology changing almost everything about our material world. So we'll be sitting at a table at some point which is made by uh, information containing little bits of fragments that were produced biologically. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a computer that says make a table and you'll be sitting there at the table. That sort of bio-nanotechnology. Uh, I think that is a reality of where it's going. Okay, and the other thing, we've been talking about this a fair amount um, in our editorial meetings, but small biotech is changing. Innova innovative biotech is changing. There's less VC funding. Um, do you think that when companies get to be the size of HGS was, you know, I know that the, the first responsibility is always to the shareholders, but is there some sort of responsibility to maybe invest in smaller companies? I don't think the first responsibility is the shareholders. You're still a scientist okay. at heart. Yeah. No, no. I think that most businessmen actually believe that in their heart, that their responsibility, especially the entrepreneurs, is to make sure the technology is adopted because that is the greater human good. The tool is the market, and if you don't respect shareholders, hmm. you don't get a second chance. You've got to respect shareholders, it's their money. But it isn't the first priority of any real entrepreneur that I know in any field, okay? And most people think entre entrepreneurs are out there to make money. That's not in my experience. They're out there to change the world with their vision. And money is one way to do it, and it's needed to do it, but it isn't what they're there for. Do you think that there is a responsibility to sort of help the smaller biotechs, you know, maybe reinvest? You, you'll see lots of farmers right. have their venture arms now. Mid-cap biotech, do they have a role? They've tried that. You know, it's, it's, if you look back at the 90s, which is a great period mm -hmm. for, for biotech when I was doing all these companies, it was a very happy interplay between the market, the stock market, the venture capital world, and the innovator. And after 2001, that sort of disappeared. Uh, but it disappeared in general, but it, it particularly disappeared for anything that had a long time horizon. Right. People realized that the time horizons were too long. I think another thing that happened is valuations got too big. People were willing to take a risk at $5 million, maybe $10 million, that they weren't willing to take at 100 to $200 million. And once the chips got higher and you were putting $100, $200 million bets on the table for startup technologies and they went bust, that hurt a lot more. Yeah, uh, you can place a lot of five million dollar bets that you, but you can't place a lot of hundred million, two hundred million dollar bets. And I think that was another thing. The pricing just got way out of whack. And as, if you could have kept the pricing low, uh, I think it, you have a chance. I think there's, and I've written a little bit about this and talked about it. I think there is a way to restructure fundamentally biotech, and what it has to do is, I think, an intelligent pool of capital would basically create an officer corps 
of uh, knowledgeable people for how to do, define drugs. They would keep a, each company would be focused on one or two drugs with no more than five or six scientists mm -hmm. who actually discovered the idea. And there would be a holding company or some other structure that had many of these companies underneath it. And they would fund it as needed and provide all of the administrative infrastructure and all of the developmental capabilities that they need. And I think that is a way of financing innovative development in this field. I think it will work, and it, 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 you can see it trying to get born. There are a lot of people who are trying it one way or another. The, the issue is you've got to put enough capital together. Yeah, where does that come for, from? Well, there are, where I think it should come from is sovereign wealth funds. Let's take every Gulf country, and even in the countries in the Arab Peninsula. They have a lot of money, and they want to build infrastructure. They want some business to call their own, mm -hmm. some business they can train their people in. This is the perfect business for them. You can attract the best brains with the money. You can use that to train the people you want to train. You can use your sovereign wealth fund, which has a long-term perspective right. because you're doing multiple things. That's the kind, or Singapore, some group like that, some country that has a sovereign, Chile, another good place. People that now have sovereign wealth funds, a long-range view that they want to have a focus, or even some states in the U.S., Texas, for example, mm -hmm. uh, who have their own funds, California, should do this kind of thing where you, you say, our goal is to create the next large pharma company. We're going to buy up all the ideas we can from academia and other places. We're going to have a large fund of capital. We're going to, and, and, and there are, there's very good evidence that this strategy works, at least in phase one, phase two, to dramatically speed things up and reduce costs. The biggest problem of big pharma and its interaction with little pharma or biotech mm -hmm. is that big pharma has a needle to move. And that needle moves in one to two billion dollar increments. Now in more, more and more in two billion dollar increments. So it's, the, the drugs are developed for a market, not for a disease. And you can't do that. That is against nature. Nature is perverse. It doesn't fit human needs and never did and never will. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to cram nature into a market, it doesn't work. Sometimes nature will grow into a market. In fact, that's all the big drugs have grown into markets. Right. You didn't anticipate they'd be so big. So you've got to create structures which allow you to get a good return on capital if the sales are 100 or $200 million. And that's not hard to do if you don't have this huge overhead the big pharmaceutical companies, and if you don't have a market demand for billions of dollars in sales for each product. So it can be done. It will be done. It's just happening a lot slower well, than it should. Let, so let me see if I've got this right. You've gone out and bought up all these ideas. So this is going to say there's or 10 products ideas. products in development or products. Pharma or other companies. Or and you keep companies. the research is very lean around each one, maybe five or six. And then right. the rest of the money is spent on your, your infrastructure around clinical trials or whatever. Well, but, which, but all that is now a fungible resource because pharma has outsourced everything and that's available to anybody. Yeah. You want a chemical library. You want a high throughput test. You want a phase one, phase two, phase three. You want whatever you want. You can get today by purchase. Yeah. You get it, and you there are multiple purveyors, so you have your choice. Um, so that sort of leads us into our next topic here. You mentioned Singapore. Right. Um, I read the – so first off, sort of let's explain what you're doing at um, Health Access International. Right. Access Health International. Oh, sorry. It's okay. God. <laughs> it's okay. well, you know what? We'll just – We'll that. edit you're that out. It. Hold on.
What are you doing at Access Health International? When I was at Human Genome Sciences and even before, I was looking out at the way I look at things is look, try to look globally. What's really happening in the world? What's needed? And what was needed was a new tool to do research, and we found it. I saw another pending storm, partly through my social interactions. I'm a I've been a member of the board of the Brookings Institution. Mm -hmm. And a number of years ago, while I was CEO, they did a study which was called Restoring Fiscal Sanity. A uh, pretty provocative title. Uh, and they projected the U.S. economy for 15 years and in a second book for 30 years. And it was really scary because you saw health care costs eating up our entire budget. Yeah. It was going to 40% of our GDP. Well, we're right on track. Today, we're right on track the way they predicted we would be. We spend $3 trillion a year now on health care, about 18% of our GDP. And it was clear that we had, that couldn't be sustained. And given the way I perceived things going, it seemed to me the way we would cope with that is to restrict service. We'd ration health in some way. First thing we would ration is new treatments. And that means all this stuff I'd worked on for my entire career, hmm. all the investments we've made through NIH, all this am amazing technology that's being developed, will go nowhere. Just would come to a dead end. And eventually, people would stop funding it. Because in reality, society funds all this wonderful stuff to get a benefit. right? And the way we benefit is uh, we've been talking about the interaction with small companies and big companies and it's how it's supposed to work and it worked really well. I think it's about to stop working and you can see signs everywhere about how we're restricting access to new medicines, yeah. uh, new treatments, new therapies. The, the mantra is if it's new, it's more expensive than the old. And uh, so I thought there have to be ways of being efficient. So I thought I'm going to set up a foundation that looks all over the world for the most efficient technologies describe those as a think tank would, develop them into to a tool that somebody could use, just like we did with genomics, develop into a usable tool, and people would then use it for their own purpose. And so we started in India, we're looking at some processes, quickly realized we should move into healthcare finance and technologies. I set up a group in Singapore mm -hmm. uh, to look at uh, e-health and telehealth originally, and then we realized that, my goodness, here's a place that's doing world, first world healthcare, better outcomes than us, at about a quarter of the price. Yeah. That's worth studying. And I've been very fortunate to find uh, young entrepreneurs, usually about 25, to go and live in a country for five, six years or longer, and find out what's going on there, and create their own program, what they should study. So we started in India by looking at uh, you, you some mean, health systems. You mean you send them there, they sort of look at what's going on and yeah, put I, together some I report? I treat them as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I say, I'm the venture capitalist. I'll give you two years of funding. After that, you fund yourself and you create your own program based on what you've seen. And if you don't create your own funding or the program veers off from our central core, then you're on your own. Yeah. So I read it. Uh, and, you know, at the end, you have a sort of a Q&A, which addresses some of the criticisms, I think, right. of Singapore's healthcare. The main one, for me anyway, was that the size of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's much smaller than something like the U.S. And I think it's easier to put processes in place in a country that small. Um, you know, we can't, especially given the way the U.S. is today, we can't get anything through well, Congress. But there are yeah. a lot of lessons, and uh, they're not all the lessons. Let's take one of the fundamental lessons of the Singapore system, that people are better at preserving their own personal dollars than they are your dollars, 
right? If it's somebody else's dollars, people are sloppy. Yeah. If it's your money, you're careful. However, you got to make it possible for people to co-pay. Not everybody can co-pay, and some people are richer than others. So you create a system that allows everybody to co-pay, and there's sliding scale for co-pay. And in addition to that, you never say you can't have X, Y, or Z. You say if you want X, Y, or Z, it's available. You got to pay more, and if you can afford it, buy it. That's a system we can live with. We understand that. The thing I actually learned about Singapore, which is fascinating, is they micromanage unbelievable detail. Who's they? You mean the government? The, the government. Mm-hmm. They have a sensor out there that senses what people want, and they'll top up a savings account with government money at a small yeah, level, twenty-five to fifty dollars, and that makes a big political difference. So we can't do that. No. You can do that as a mayor. You can do that, you know, of a small city. You can do that maybe in a small state. You can't do that across America. So there are other ways we can cope with that, that we can break this down into administrative areas, or not maybe each state, but administrative areas. There are a lot of ways we can think about how to do that. Would you say that one of the problems then with the U.S. healthcare system is insurance? Because that's the thing that sort of fights um, transparency. I mean, you know. Well, it's a way we do insurance. It's comprehensive insurance. Singapore has insurance. They have an opt-out, which is near universal because now you have to opt-out when you're a baby, so your parents have to opt-out. And what parent is ever going to opt-out right. health insurance? But it's a, a high copay or high deductible uh, catastrophic health insurance. So for you, it would cost you with a family of four being whatever age you are, let's say you're 40, it would cost you maybe $250 a year. On average, that ends up to be 2% of our insurance costs. That's insurance, and it's real insurance. And if you run out of your copay and you still have to copay for that, there's a fund that will come and help you. So they, have a, they have a backstop. So another principle is you pay, you copay to your ability, and you copay so it can hurt. But you have a backstop so you're never without care. And so this book is um, it's available on Amazon? It's uh, available on Amazon. And, and through our website. website as well. It, it's uh, www.accessh.org. Okay, perfect. So it's available through that. Um, I actually read it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I'm, I'm well, not just saying you. that because you're sitting here, but I actually did. Um, you also, so you live in New York now. Yeah, Have you been living here for years? Uh, well, I've been living here half time for over 20 years. Yeah. But uh, I now live almost full time here. And you're on a couple boards, like you're in the board of the Met? Yeah, the, both Mets. Actually, I'm on the, the advisory board of the Metropolitan Opera and on the chairman's uh, circle for the. Uh, Metropolitan Museum and the President's Circle for the Metropo- for the uh, Museum of Modern Art and a few others. And um, are, are you, just for fun, do you consider yourself an artist? Do you think there's a tie between science and art? Well, What's I have reason? a foundation which uh, helps support the interaction between uh, science and art. It's called the Foundation for the Heseltine Foundation for uh, Science and Art. And so I think that there... And what's the goal? The, the, the goal there is different. The goal there is that just as religion is um, metaphysical, not real, you can't see it, art has been the major translator of religion for people. Mm-hmm. Images, music, uh, it's been the way you translate the metaphysics to human emotion, which makes a difference. Science has moved into the realm of metaphysics. It used to be that Leonardo could draw a picture and you could understand what he's talking about. Well. Try that with the Higgs boson. 
Okay. Pretty difficult, <laughs> right? Even I have a hard time getting my head. What's yeah. a particle? What's a physical? What's, yeah. what's, what's dark matter, right? Uh, and biology is the same. It's, and so how, it, it's metaphysical. It's not real. It's not tangible. You can't see it. So how do you translate to people? I think you translate it through art, through music. Um, literature? Uh, through literature also, yeah. Through art and music literature, you translate these ideas. And, you, and what an artist does, some, what many artists do, is they have the capacity to take abstractions and impact human feelings. And it's sort of a mysterious transformation, but that's what they do. And I think science is needed. It's a key driver for so many aspects. And rather than alienating people from it because it's so metaphysical and intangible, uh, I think it needs to be translated. And I see two trends in that. I see a trend which people know about, which is the Frankenstein trend. Let's show the ultimate horror of these new technologies. I'm going to be sucked into a black hole and you know, vaporized. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to turn a mouse green with an ear on its back. Right. Or there's the other trend which actually tries to make it understandable, meaningful, and integrate it into part of your life. And I see a whole school of art, a series of museums now that have been growing up around the country and around the world of science and art. And I think that's a very healthy trend. So there it is, the Bill Hazeltine interview. His new book, Affordable Excellence, The Singapore Health System, can be found on Amazon.com and also at www.accessh.org under the Resources tab. It's downloadable for free onto Kindles, and I actually read the PDF version on an iPad. So, yeah, free. You can't argue with the price. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I absolutely enjoyed talking to Bill. Thanks, as always, to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music, and you have been listening to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. 
From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover.